Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting the 4th of July. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll hear about a big 4th of July guy, Benjamin Franklin, with historian and author Joyce Chaplin. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Joyce Chaplin. We originally played a much shorter edited version of this interview on the April 26, 2006 podcast, but there was a great deal of Ben Franklin conversation we didn't have time for on that episode, and since it's the 4th of July, here's the entire discussion we had last April. To put things into context, 2006 marked Franklin's 300th birthday. Of course, in addition to being a diplomat and publisher, he was a first-rate scientist, and Harvard historian Joyce Chaplin had come out with a Franklin biography that concentrated on his science. I call Chaplin at our home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Dr. Chaplin, thanks for talking to us. Thank you. First, uh, the, the name of the book, The First Scientific American, Benjamin Franklin and the Pursuit of Genius. Let's, uh, let's tell everybody that you are not in any way affiliated with Scientific American. That's just a coincidence with the book titles. Exactly. Franklin has been called an American um, so often and the first American that I wanted to remind everyone that the science had something to do with his identity. So... Um, it was an independent finding, I swear. And why the first scientific American, though? Because science was so important, not only to his identity, but to the later career that he had as an American founder. He really had much more prominence and influence um, as a man of science than he would have otherwise. And certainly he had the most prominence and influence of any American of his time because of the work that he'd done on science, hence first scientific American. Now, April 29th, uh, 250 years ago, Franklin was elected to the Royal Society of London, the most prestigious scientific society in the world at the time, and pretty prestigious to this date. Maybe some people still consider it the most prestigious. Uh, so what earned him that election, and why was that such a big deal in everything that happened after that in Franklin's life? He was elected because of his work on electricity. His experiments and observations on electricity um, had been published in London, the first edition, in 1751. On the basis of that, the Royal Society awarded uh, Franklin its coveted Cupley Medal, um, still a very high award, which Franklin received in 1753, and that was followed up with an election his election to the Royal Society in 1756, and that was an amazing honor. First of all, it was rare for somebody who had uh, who was from humble birth, like Franklin, to be so elected. Most of the time, this is an honor that went to gentlemen who had been born gentlemen. That is fairly high up on the social scale. Um, it really did prove that Franklin was self-made as a man of science in a very significant way. Also, um, the the vote was reported to have been unanimous, uh, which was extraordinarily rare as well. And to cap it all off, the Royal Society initially waived any fees for his admission and instead simply entered him on the rolls as a member. So quite an extraordinary honor um, and done to recognize Franklin's work on electricity. After that point, the honors never stopped. Franklin kept getting elected to other societies. He got honorary degrees. Nearly every kind of accolade was given to him. <clears throat> and really, on the strength of that as well, he began to get important political positions. Uh, he had had some political influence before, but nothing like what he got afterward. Most significantly, he became postmaster general uh, for the colonies, uh, a position for which he had really used 
his network um, in and out of the Royal Society in London in order to, to guarantee that he would get that job. And after that point, his political influence really increases as well. So in some ways, um, it's that publication of the experiments and observations and then the Royal Society's recognition of that important publication that made Franklin what he was. So it's fairly safe to say that without Franklin the scientist, we don't have Franklin the elder statesman of the American Revolution. Exactly. Again, he came from a rather humble background. He had pulled himself up in Philadelphia, was doing fairly well, but he would never have become famous and influential without that work in science. Um, and uh, he would never certainly have had the international reputation that would have allowed him to represent the United States in Paris uh, quite successfully. You've written extensively about an area of Franklin's science that maybe is not as well known as the electricity, and that's his charting of the Gulf Stream. Can you talk about that? Yes. Um, that was a very interesting and long-lasting episode in Franklin's life. He was fascinated with the sea. He wanted to run away and be a sailor as a boy, um, and he didn't do that, but he did manage to investigate the ocean really throughout his life, culminating with his uh, charting of the Gulf Stream. He and a cousin, uh, Timothy Bulger, did the first chart of the Gulf Stream in 1768, um, and uh, he did subsequently two more charts of the Gulf Stream after that. I think that work is very interesting in the way that it shows that science was very embedded in politics and public culture at the time. Franklin charted the Gulf Stream and wrote about it initially because he was postmaster general, and he was worried about the time that it took the post, the mail, to get back and forth across the Atlantic. Uh, and the Gulf Stream helped explain why it took longer going from England to the colonies than the reverse. Um, so that's a way in which uh, science was uh, very much part of Franklin's political life, his life in public affairs, and that's really true of all of his science, though I think the, the work on the oceans makes that immediately apparent in a way that perhaps the electrical experiments don't. <clears throat> that's, that's really interesting. I had no idea that one's uh, political station and the, the direction of one's science might be connected in that way. Well, I think that today we think of scientists as being very specialized and in some ways cut off from other fields. But in Franklin's day, in the 18th century, science was really part of public culture. Uh, scientific demonstrations were done in public. A wide array of people took an interest in science. Uh, probably the British monarch best trained in science ever was George III, uh, just an indication, again, of the fascination uh, that, that science held for people. Another good example um, is just where Franklin seemed to have done most of his electrical experiments. Uh, he and the other members of the Library Company of Philadelphia who did those experiments uh, seemed to have done them in part of the Pennsylvania State House, now Independence Hall. Um, and that's, I think, just a wonderful example of how uh, a public building, a government building, could be loaned um, basically as a laboratory. Um, in order for people to do science, um, and it shows a way in which science is really not cut off from the rest of public life in a way that obviously uh, it would be now. Right. Although we do do anthrax experiments in the U.S. Capitol building. Oh, dear. 
I, uh, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to claim that Franklin's experiments were the ancestor of that. Right, right. Uh, I just wanted to ask you, speaking of this public culture and science thing, I've read, uh, I know Bertrand Russell wrote about the fact that uh, some members of the clergy were were upset with Franklin's electricity experiments. They thought he was sort of messing about with, uh, when he when he was doing lightning experiments, messing about in, in the realm of... Uh, of what should be the province of the religious rather than rather than uh human beings. So what's what was the the uh situation there? Was the clergy really upset? Well, um I think the the takeaway point here is that the clergy was involved um and the science and religion were seen as areas that really commented on each other. Um and in some ways went hand in hand. It's remarkable the number of men of science in both Britain and America uh, who were clergymen uh, and who felt that they were, in a sense, completely qualified to do science, uh, though it may have also influenced their the way that they looked at religion. Um, now, there is a sense in the present day, I think, that science and religion are great enemies and are constantly in conflict. Uh, I really think that this is the view that we have post-Darwin, it was really in the Victorian era that science and religion were firmly parted um, and then pitted against each other. That That's a subsequent view that then some people, including Bertrand Russell, have used to talk about the past, um, the eras before the Victorian era, but it's a fundamental misunderstanding. Um, Franklin himself believed that, uh, as was true of many of people at the time, that science was really a way of appreciating God's handiwork, um, that the creation, the physical creation, was one set of wonders after the other, um, and that it was almost an act of worship to understand uh, what, what the natural creation was. What really impresses me about Franklin and science is that he really thought it was important for people to understand what nature was and how it worked, even though he believed um in the conventional Christian idea that at the end of days, all of the material creation would be destroyed. Um, and so there's a wonderful act of faith uh, in his idea that by comprehending nature, you comprehend God, even though the physical creation was finite. And so uh, to that specific point, there was not widespread outrage at, at Franklin and his electricity experiments. No, um, there would have been, again, commentary by some of the clergy, but I think that actually most of the commentary and even the critical commentary about Franklin's electrical work was done by fellow men of science uh, who criticized uh, the definition that Franklin gave of electricity. I think that was a much more important de- uh, uh, debate, and what the religious men were saying was in some sense um, outshadowed by that. So the uh, the kind of outrage that Bertrand Russell quotes one clergyman, and that's probably the equivalent of quoting Pat Robertson today and saying that he speaks for all clergy? I don't know which clergyman Russell would have quoted, and I don't want to insult that clergyman, <laughs> uh, um, by, by, by saying that he would have been more or less fundamental than others. Um, it was a Dr. Price of... Um, of Boston, who was particularly upset with Franklin. Well, there was commentary, uh, again, by the clergy, but I really do think that focusing on that is anachronistic. Um, again, that's the view that um, 
men of science and men of faith were uh, completely different camps and pitted against each other is very, very misleading. Doctor, I almost called you Dr. Franklin. Does that happen a lot? <laughs> uh, sometimes. Uh, I always say that I can't accept the compliment. <laughs> the gout comes along with the honor. Is that a real quote, or is that just in the movie 1776? The gout comes along with the honor. <laughs> right. And, oh. and so, do you know the quote? Um, he Well, he, said, he had a whole dialogue um, between himself and the gout. I don't uh, know whether that's what it comes from. In, in the movie um, and the Broadway show, one of the new delegates says, do you have the honor of being Mr. Franklin? Yes, and the gout comes along with the honor. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But we can blame that on the Royal Society, too, I guess. I'm always under the impression that of all of, all of them, he was the one that you'd most like to hang out with today. Possibly. Um, you know, what's very odd about Franklin is everyone at the time comments on how taciturn he is, hmm. that he's very quiet. Um, he was not a good public speaker, um, not given, you know, to um, the, the loud anecdote over the dinner table, and that even one-on-one, he really got people to talk a lot to him without reciprocating. Um, and so that gives a different sense of him, I think. Sure, uh, and that, it probably explains why so many people thought he was so interesting. <laughs> The mystery was always there, I think. Um, and it is a very, it's its kind of a power play to get the other person to keep talking while you listen. Um, and, of course, he was a master prose stylist. Uh, he knew how to use words, but in some ways he let other people keep babbling until he could um, get his uh, famously laconic wisdom in, um, but then I think he took a lot of what he learned in conversation and then put it down on paper when he had control over it. Sure, that's so. Uh, but people said he was he was also famously charming, um, and in some ways, I shouldn't say that he let people babble, um, but he made people talk probably in a way where they felt like they were they were giving him wisdom, they were saying interesting things to the great man. Um, and so everyone loved to talk to him. Um, but interestingly, I mean, we're, we're such a, a garrulous culture um, that I'm not sure that personality uh, would have as good press these days. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, just the range of things he knew and everyone he knew um, and the famous charm, which, again, might look dated to us but certainly worked back then, that would have been reason enough, I think, to hang out with him. Do you think that his uh, his early training as a newspaper guy was uh, responsible for that, for learning how to just get other people to keep talking? Or is that a modern journalistic thing? Well, I do wonder. I, I think that you can explain a lot of things about Franklin by the fact that, you know, he has to have to get the newspaper out regularly, make sure he printed things that would sell. Um, and so he had a very keen eye to what could be news what would pay, um, and what would really let him get ahead. Uh, so even though he, he gets out of the printing business in the late 1740s, but he'd been in it for decades, and mm-hmm. I really do think that that was a formative experience that never leaves him. Dr. Chaplin, thank you very much for, for talking to us today. Oh, thank you so much. What are you staring at? Haven't you ever seen a great man before? <laughs> <laughs> Good Lord, sir. Do you have the honor to be Dr. Franklin? Yes, I have that honor. Unfortunately, the gout accompanies the honor. Ah, 
Been living too high again, eh, Pappy? Oh, Stephen, I only wish King George felt like my big toe all over. Joyce Chaplin's book about Franklin is called The First Scientific American, Benjamin Franklin and the Pursuit of Genius. And the Bertrand Russell essay that discusses Franklin and Dr. Price is called An Outline of Intellectual Rubbish. Just Google that phrase, an outline of intellectual rubbish, and it comes right up. We'll be right back. Send your science videos to Scientific American and see if yours becomes a featured video. Follow the simple instructions at siam.com slash video submit. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, eating 30 calories a day of dark chocolate reduces blood pressure. Story two, some people sat in lines for days to be among the first owners of the new Apple iPhones. Story three, a new mathematical model of the universe indicates a big bounce from a previous universe rather than a big bang from nothing. And story four, college football players have three times the risk of catastrophic head injury than do high school football players. Time's up. Story one is true. 30 calories worth of dark chocolate a day slightly reduces blood pressure, according to a study in the July 4th issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association. It's probably the polyphenols in the cocoa that do the trick, although the researchers worry that the fat and sugar in the usual chocolate bars will more than outweigh the good effects of cocoa's polyphenols. You know that story two is true. People lined up for days to get an iPhone and our forefathers fought a war for independence. Story three is true. A new model of the universe proposed by Penn State physicists combines quantum physics with general relativity to come up with a big bounce instead of a big bang. The model does away with the troubling zero volume and infinite energy at the start of the big bang. For more, see the July 2nd edition of the Daily Cyan podcast, 60 Second Science, and J.R. Minkle's July 1st article on our website called Echoes from Before the Big Bang May Be Inaudible. All of which means that story four about college football players being at greater risk of catastrophic head injury than high schoolers is totally bogus because a report in the July issue of the American Journal of Sports Medicine found that high school players are at three times the risk of college football players. Possible causes are that the younger brain is more susceptible to injury and that high school players who had already suffered minor brain injuries are back in action too soon because of few team doctors at the high school level. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Scientific American podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com. Check out news articles at siam.com. And the daily Siam podcast is at the website and at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. But I say you should write it. Franklin, yes, you. Hell no. Yes, you, Dr. Franklin. You. But. You. But. You. But. Mr. Adams. But, Mr. Adams, the things I write are only light extemporanea. I won't put politics on paper, it's a mania. So I refuse to use the pen in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, refuse.